The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn to the book of Esther, if you will, to Esther chapter 3. We're continuing our series in this book. And between chapter 2 and 3, there are five years that go on as we pick up the story here in chapter 3. So King Ahasuerus has been king for 12 years. Esther now has been queen for five years. At the end of chapter 2, Mordecai discovers this plot against the king and reports it, but he's not rewarded for it. He's not exalted at all uh, for it, but we find someone else is exalted in in, uh, Esther chapter 3. So we pick up the story in chapter 3, reading God's Word. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, 
And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews young and old women and children in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word, and may he give us understanding as we seek him. In 1521, in the spring of that year, Martin Luther, the great reformer, appeared before a church proceeding called a diet in Worms, Germany. Luther's very life was at stake because he was accused of teaching heresy by the Roman Catholic Church of that day. Luther was called to renounce and recant his teachings. Here he stood with the full weight of empire upon him, and probably many of you know the concluding words of his courageous reply at that proceeding. I'll read it to you. The ending of it goes like this. Your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced of error by the testimony of Scripture, or, since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of Pope or councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradicted themselves, by manifest reasoning, I stand convinced by the Scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's Word I cannot and will not recant anything, for to act against conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. I'm sure many of you have heard that statement before. What an an historic showdown, we might say, between the empire of that day, the powers of religious authority of that day, and almost a lone reformer standing for the Word of God. And the result would be an edict issued by Emperor Charles V declaring Luther to be a notorious heretic and putting a reward on his capture. But if you know history, you know that Luther was not taken into custody. He was protected by various individuals and and protected by the providence of God himself to labor for years in the gospel and to be an instrument, a mighty instrument in the Protestant Reformation. Well, I use that example to introduce Esther chapter 3. Here in Esther 3, we have another kind of showdown, you might say. We see this man, Haman, elevated to high authority, second only to the king himself. And it's not coincidental that it follows on the tale of chapter 2, where 
if anyone should have been elevated, Mordecai should have been elevated. Of course, that will come in due time. It's all part of the purposes of God. But for now, Mordecai is overlooked for the good deed that he had done in in foiling this plot, telling about this plot against the king's life, and Haman is elevated. But we find that Mordecai the Jew refuses to bow down and honor him. And out of this showdown, where Haman is infuriated by Mordecai's refusal to do this day after day, out of this showdown spins this plan for the destruction of the Jews throughout the Persian Empire. And this was quite an empire. If you look in the back of your Bible at the the empire of the Medo-Persian Empire, it includes most of the known world of the Near East of that day, -day present-day Iraq, Iran, part of Pakistan, certainly Israel, Syria, Jordan, Turkey, go on and on, the great expansion of this empire. So it would include both the Jews that were still exiled in Persia, Babylon, that area, but it would also include all the Jews who had returned to Israel. But at the same time, we know that as the book unfolds, we will witness the plans and the purposes of a much higher king unfold, the purposes of God in the keeping and protecting of His people out of His great love and His grace. I want us to learn this evening something from this chapter about the nature of a believer's life in this world as a stranger and exile. Even as the Jews in Persia at this time had lived in Persia their entire lives, still there was a real sense in which they were still exiles. They were not completely comfortable as citizens of Persia. They were called to live in accordance with a higher king in a different kingdom. And you and I know that's true for us as well. As in the roll call of faith in Hebrews 11, where in verse 13, the faithful those who are exercising faith are described as those who have acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. How does that speak to you and to me, the culture and the society in which you and I live? That's what we want to see, and we're going to begin. We have five points and then an application to draw, and the first point is this. Why Mordecai didn't bow to Haman? We want to stop and think about this. And we can't, when we ask that question, why Mordecai didn't bow, maybe our minds immediately go to the book of Daniel, who was earlier than Mordecai. And we know Daniel didn't cooperate with the food laws. He sought to negotiate so that he didn't have to be ceremonially unclean with the Babylonian foods that the king wanted him and his friends to eat. And we especially think of Daniel chapter 3, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to that huge golden idol of the king. So that's in our minds. But for Haman, most commentators agree And the text seems to indicate that this was not probably a matter of religious worship. In other words, Mordecai's conscience probably wasn't constrained as if he were being compelled to worship Haman. No, the bowing required here was the kind of 
not the honor of worship, but the honor of court protocol. You know, if you would have an audience with the Queen of England and you were required to curtsy as a, a woman or a bow, would you refuse to do that because this was against your religion? Probably not. It's court protocol. That's the kind of thing that it was there. Now, we're not absolutely sure of it, but most are agreed that that was the case. In fact, the clear implication of all of this is that certainly Mordecai would have bowed with this political courtesy and what courtroom protocol would have been when King Ahasuerus was in the room. He would have been bowing to the king, and that would have not been wrong for him. It was the right kind of courtesy for a Near East monarch to be acknowledged in that way. There would have been that kind of behavior. So the clear implication is that Mordecai was bowing, was refusing to bow for some other reason. In fact, the implications of the beginning of this book of Esther are that Mordecai is relatively high in the administration of the king. At the end of chapter 2, we find him in the city gates. You know, when you think of city gates, kids, don't just think of a pair of iron gates. This was a, a complex of buildings at the gate, a large building with other buildings coming off of that, one of them leading to the king's, where the king would live, and with, lar- with a large room or many large rooms where the advisors of the king would sit. This is like city hall. Mordecai spent his time at city hall. He was part of the administration. Mordecai was very used to compromising and seeking to be wise, living as a stranger in a strange land. He would have had to make many compromises to fit in with the pagan culture and government of Persia. And in fact, Mordecai, in the beginning of the book, is clearly far from being standing out as an obstinate rebel against the king in some way. In chapter 2, when we see Esther brought into the harem of the king, we see that Mordecai showed little concern, no concern, over Esther being taken in this way, probably against her will. Uh, We don't know whether she wanted to be taken into the harem or not, but she very well may have not wanted to be with this Gentile king, to be in his harem along with the defiling food and corrupting practices that were certainly a part of that pagan culture and environment. In fact, when that all happens, Mordecai even insisted that Esther conceal her Jewishness. So Mordecai is not really standing out up to this point as if he's taking a bold stand. Well, what is the reason for his not bowing? The key to understanding that is revealed when you read the two verses where both Mordecai is introduced in chapter 2, verse 5, and Haman is introduced in chapter 3, verse 1. Go back to chapter 2, verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. He's a son of Kish. He's a Benjamite. Maybe you remember another famous Benjamite, King Saul, related in some way. Haman, when he's introduced, after these things, King Ahasuerus, chapter 3, verse 1, promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. 
He's introduced as an Agagite. He's a descendant of Agag, the Amalekite. Now, Exodus chapter 17 gives us the context for all of this with the Amalekites. If you remember your history, when Israel went into its wilderness wanderings, who was the first nation to attack them? The Amalekites. They sought to destroy the nation of Israel. And God, as a result, declared an everlasting enmity against the Amalekites, and God committed himself to blot out all remembrance of Amalek from the face of heaven. Now, this will be coming up again as we consider the conclusion of the book of Esther. So, we want to be keeping this in mind when the Jews destroy those who are seeking to destroy them. It fits in with Exodus 17. In fact, Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 and 19, actually God commands the nation of Israel to be agents of His divine judgment on the Amalekites. Sometimes God sends fire and brimstone like He did with Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes God sends a great flood like He did with Noah. For the Amalekites, God had commanded Israel, the nation, to be the agents of His justice. And so by the time we get to King Saul... In 1 Samuel 15, and you probably all remember the story who are familiar with that, when King Saul has been commanded by God to destroy the Amalekites, same group, to not take any plunder from them, to destroy man and beast, and King Saul fails. He takes the best of the plunder for himself, and he spares King Agag. This is the ancestor of Haman. And because of that, we're we're not going to go into 1 Samuel 15 now, but because of that, King Saul is rejected by the Lord, and and the Lord raises up David instead. That's all the historical context to this. So now we have Mordecai related to King Saul, a Benjamite, and we have Haman, an, an Agag, an Amalekite. This is all in the background. And so it, it's not, and since the author of the book highlights who their ancestry is, it's very likely he intends to tell us by that mechanism what was going on was this long standing enmity. And Mordecai was refusing to bow down. That brings me to my second point Mordecai's stand an example of our great need for wisdom. Mordecai takes a stand here. And it shows us, as we think about it and wonder about this stand he takes, it shows us our need for wisdom to live as strangers and aliens where we are. And our need for prayer and seeking the Lord to be in the world, which we know we are, we live in this world, and not be of the world have to remember that Esther is not a book of human heroes. God is the hero of this book. Mordecai is used by God, and he has some good things and some bad things. Esther is used by God. She's courageous, but, you know, they aren't without failing in any way. And especially at the beginning of the book, when they're concealing who they are, that's not according to God's will. Mordecai's stand shows us our need for wisdom as well. And we we step back and we ask, looking at chapter 3, and we see 
Day after day, Mordecai doesn't bow. All his friends in the administration there, they don't really seem to be against him. They talk to him about it, in fact. You know, you think they're saying, Mordecai, what are you doing? They finally go to Haman, though, but, though, but you don't get the sense that they're just out to get Mordecai. You get the sense that they're just kind of confused by all this, and they finally uh, go to the higher authorities about it. Was Mordecai right? Commentators don't agree on this, but many commentators say, well, Mordecai took a very firm stand in what we might call a gray area. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they clearly took a stand on a very black and white issue, especially when you think of not bowing down to worship a huge golden idol made by the king. Mordecai not giving political courtesy to Haman was a gray area. And certainly, this courageous stance of Mordecai would be used by God as the book unfolds, as history unfolds. God is using this. So certainly, it's of the Lord in that sense. But just think of the historical context to this. The return to the land of Israel under Ezra and under Nehemiah had taken place probably 50 or more years before this, okay? So many of the Jews had already returned to Israel. The temple had been rebuilt at great sacrifice and cost. Nehemiah had returned and built the walls of Jerusalem again. This is all history. Where was Mordecai and where were his parents during all this? They were still in exile. They They weren't part of the return, We can't say that they were less spiritual or not, but really God had called the Israelites to return. A lot of them didn't return. So Mordecai and his family, Esther and her family, they had been used to compromising. And uh, this had all returned. It was like returning to the poor backwater nation of Israel or staying in Metro D.C. or New York. You know, Mordecai had stayed in the metropolitan area where life was pretty good, but it was also difficult not to be of the world. Other Jews had returned and counted the cost for that. And and you can't help but assume that Mordecai's family and Mordecai and many of the Jews in the exile had become very comfortable with where they were. I mean, Jeremiah had told them to pray for the nation where they went, to seek the good of the city and the people where they went, but there's one thing to seek the good of that when you're in exile, and it's another thing to just become part of it. Don't we all know how hard that is to live as strangers and exiles in the world? But now, Mordecai refused to bow to Haman. Apparently, for Mordecai, this was a bridge too far. He was a Benjamite. He was a descendant of Kish, and Haman was an Agite. He wasn't going to do that. And just think of this principle then, this need for wisdom as we apply it to you and to me, living in an increasingly non-Christian culture and society. Where do you and I take a stand? How do we take a stand? What about all the gray areas? And we all feel these things. Don't we very much? Don't we know how hard it is? The world is pressing us into its mold. Most of us aren't being asked to go out on Oregon Pike and bow down before a golden idol there, you know, or off with our heads. No, it's very 
insinuous. It's very difficult to know where to take a stand. And the example of Mordecai here shows us our need for prayer, our need to be asking God for wisdom, our need for humility, for honest searching of our hearts, for love and charity in looking at fellow Christians and being tough on ourselves, but being charitable and loving toward those who may make different decisions than we do in certain areas, being slow to be judgmental about various things. And we have to ask ourselves, are we often like Mordecai taking a bold and courageous stand on a very minor issue while we buy into the world lock, stock, and barrel on a more fundamental and important issue. It's possible to do that. Maybe we should take that stand on that gray area issue, but we've failed to take a stand on a more fundamental issue. One commentator writing about this says it this way. I like the way he says it. Jesus complained about the Pharisees of his day that they swallowed camels but strained out gnats. What a vivid picture of many of our churches. We are expert gnat strainers, sieving out with precision the wrong movies, the inappropriate clothes and hairstyles, the sinful styles of music, any minor deviancies from traditional church practice, wherever and whenever we encounter them. Yet, at the same time, we may easily tolerate in ourselves and those around us camel-sized sins, such as gossip about others, or pride in our own accomplishments, or prayerlessness. And I might add, the camel-sized sins of materialism. How hard it is to be wise when we have so much and not let our hearts be ensnared by it. That's very difficult living in the West, not to buy into materialism, or the camel-sized sin of sexual impurity in a sexualized world. Or as Francis Schaeffer uses the term that he coined in the 70s, buying into personal peace and affluence. You know, we just want to be comfortable and be left alone. And maybe that's a camel we're swallowing and we strain out the gnats. Don't we feel a need for wisdom? This is a war. And if you are not aware of the war that we face in terms of culture and the world squeezing us into its mold, then you know you are being conformed to the world. If you aren't fighting this and praying about this and seeking the Lord, this is something that we must do constantly. Well, that brings us to our third point, the hidden spiritual warfare at the root of the conflict. The hidden spiritual warfare at the root of the conflict. Haman doesn't want to just punish Mordecai. Haman wants to wipe out all of the Jews. He wants ultimate satisfaction. You know, he wants utter destruction. What was the source of Haman's fury? Well, we could say, well, it was his pride. He was being publicly embarrassed by Mordecai refusing to bow day after day. Haman wanted to enhance his image and his reputation. Well, yes, that's the case. But his fury went way beyond that. And the reality is, the deepest reason 
is that Haman is merely a tool, an instrument of Satan. And Haman's enmity is simply one manifestation of Satan's ongoing warfare against the people of God throughout the ages, in every time and in every place. Satan is always seeking to destroy God's people, and that's at the heart of it here. And the security of God's people in an earthly way, in one sense, is always fragile as God's people live under worldly rulers. There are no guarantees about that in terms of earthly security. We in the United States have been greatly blessed. If our liberties and religious freedoms we find these days are under attack to some degree, yes, we ought to grieve, and yes, we ought to pray, and yes, we ought to do everything we can as citizens of the United States to uh, seek to uphold these religious freedoms, but you and I must not think something strange is happening. This is the way of the world. This is always the case for the world. Yes, the United States has been an anomaly, we might say, and, and, and a great wonderful place for Christians to exercise religious freedom for the past 200 years plus. But more typically, it's the other way. In most parts of the world, it's the other way. Governments are corrupt. Governments oppress. In Revelation 13, we learn that Satan himself animates and drives the ungodly beast of Revelation. The beast of this world, the beast being most likely seen in oppressive, persecuting government. And the typical pattern and demand of this beastly power is always that God's people bow down in worship and respect. And the early church wouldn't do that. The churches in Asia Minor wouldn't do that. They wouldn't cooperate with beastly worship, even though it was very superficial it was part of the local trade guild, you know, come to the local trade guild barbecue and, you know, go through the religious rites with us. It's all part of being part of the society. And Revelation spoke to them about their need to stand and not bow down. Just the other day, a week or two ago, you might have read about, I think it was about 30 children killed in northern Nigeria by the Boko Haram. And that word means I think it means in translation, no Western schools. I'm not sure how that's translated. But it's a radical Muslim terror group. And a great majority of the Christians being killed right now in the world are in northern Nigeria as a result of this terrorist group. That shouldn't surprise us. That's happening all over the place. The World Christian Encyclopedia, edited by David Barrett, estimates that in the 20th century... How many Christians per year were martyred for their, their faith? Just guess a figure in your mind. The figure he estimates it at is 300,000 Christians a year in the 20th century. If you multiply 300,000 times 100, that's 30 million Christians martyred for their faith in 100 years. Does it surprise us? Maybe some of you saw on the news this week that the Attorney General of Pennsylvania decided not to defend the standing law of the state, which was a law supporting traditional marriage. The Democratic 
attorney general decided not to defend that law in this lawsuit brought against it by the ACLU. And it's not surprising that she took that stand in terms of her political context. But it shouldn't surprise us. These kind of things shouldn't surprise us. This is the way the world works. Our expectation ought to be life in this world for you and for me is in reality, according to Scripture, the life of a stranger in exile. We don't feel that way most of the time. You know, we have our birthplaces and everything like that. This is home, but we're really exiles. And so it will be a life of constant spiritual conflict and warfare. The kingdoms of this world are allied against the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Fourth, we learned, don't put your hope in the kings of this world. And that makes sense in light of what we just have seen. Don't put your hope and trust in the kings of this world. But then in verses 7 through 11, after we see what Haman did and his fury about this, we see this description of the deal he makes with King Ahasuerus. And we read through this. It begins with casting lots. We're going to talk more about that. But then when he finally decides what the best day would be, according to this, the, the purr that he cast, the lots that he cast, he goes to the king and he makes him an offer he can't refuse. And King Ahasuerus says yes. And he gives him the signet ring off his hand and says, go ahead, do what you want to do. And let's just stop to think about what King Ahasuerus has done here. He just goes along with the manipulation and the plan that Haman has. And we ask, why? Was this king being wise? Was this king being bold and courageous? Did he study the issues? Did he see what was best for the nation? None of this. What's the first thing that comes up? Money. King Ahasuerus, known by his Greek name as King Xerxes, probably had just lost the Greek wars that are so famous, you know, the 300 Spartans and everything. King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus had probably, and when this takes place, most likely that's recently taken place. And so for Haman to say, I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver to go into the treasury, that was about two-thirds of the national tax revenue for a year, maybe even more, maybe almost a whole year's worth. And that would be a pretty good deal for a king if somebody said, I'll give you the national deficit this year, and, and I'll take care of it. That's a ransom fit for a king. So certainly it appealed to the king in that way. By the way, 10,000 talents of silver is 300 tons, just to give you an idea. That's a lot. You kids can think about how much 300 tons of silver would be. That would go a long way. Probably... Haman gave that number and exaggerated what he really could do. And probably he sought, he would seek to get this silver, verse 13, from the plunder of the Jews when they're killed. That's part of the deal. They were going to destroy the Jews and plunder them. Commentators emphasize and, and they estimate that probably the plunder of the Jews, if all of it went to Haman himself, would not be near enough to make up 10,000 talents of silver. But pro- so probably he was making his case better than it really was. King, I'm going to get you this. Probably it wouldn't have amounted to that much. But the wider issue was 
Why did King Ahasuerus do this? Out of apathy? Out of self-interest? We see throughout the book, you know, from the beginning, King Ahasuerus is not a very good king. He's manipulated by those around him. Uh, He doesn't really care about things. Uh, Very typical for the rulers of this world throughout history when you think of it. That's often the case. Did the king have the real interests of his subjects in view? Did he think this was going to be good for his empire, that the Jews would be annihilated? I don't think he thought much about it. He can't be bothered to think about it. In fact, in verse 15, when the chapter comes to a close, and it says, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. You get the idea, the king said, oh, okay, well, let's go have a drink. You know, he's more interested in uh, that than in the well-being of the empire. Apathy, self-interest, King Ahasuerus can't be bothered. So clearly, we must see the biblical truth. Put not your trust in princes, in mortal men. No. And that brings us to point number five, the greater plans of a higher king. In verse 7, it's interesting to see that Haman decides to cast pur, that is, cast the lots. And that's the word, the plural is purim, and part of the purpose of the book of Esther is to explain why the Jews celebrate purim, which is this great festival of the Jews' victory over their enemies that we'll read about at the end of the book. And so when Haman decides to destroy the Jews, he casts lots. And they went through the whole year, month after month, day after day, as they did this. And finally, it came on the 12th month on the 13th day. And that's the decision that is made. He wanted to learn the time for a propitious attack. Now, he cast these lots in the first month. The date that was decided was in the 12th month. So it's providential, as we'll see, that there are 11 months in between. It's about as far as you can get from the first month. It's tragically ironic that the date chosen, the 13th, the date that they um, sent out this, not the, not the date that was picked, but the, the day after the king decides, and he sends out the letter across the empire on the 13th of the first month, that's the eve of Passover. A tragic, tragically ironic point that you might not notice unless you were a Jew and you knew that. It's like the message goes out Christmas Eve. It's Passover Eve, and we all know what Passover meant when the Jews were saved. And here it's almost like it's being turned upside down, but we will ultimately see God's providence shining through. And clearly the verse in Proverbs 16.33 about the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord is going to shine out here that God is sovereign over even the lot that was cast and how he works through this. And in fact, down in verse 11, when Haman and the king are discussing this, we read, and the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. King Ahasuerus says, these people are given to you. Now, was that really true? King Ahasuerus might think he gave the Jews to him, but we know it wasn't true. 
These are God's people. And God's people have not been given unless God gives them. And God would still save his covenant people from this scheme and from annihilation and destruction, even though they were a people who had been exiled because of their disobedience to God's covenant. Remember that. They were exiled. They are are in exile because of God's judgment upon them years before. And even the ones who have returned are not without fault and without failing. But God is a God of grace, and God has a greater and a better plan. We can look at this situation in light of the gospel itself, and I love the way Dr. Ian Duguid describes this and compares King Ahasuerus to the king of love. Let me read a part of a page of his book. I think this is a beautiful description of a great difference here. Ironically, God himself has far more reasons to act against us and our families than Ahasuerus did against the Jews. We have not kept God's law. We have refused to bow down before him and submit to him as we ought, giving him the honor that is his by rights as our creator. It is actually true in our case that it is not to God's profit to tolerate us since we are born cosmic rebels against his goodness and grace. What is more, we have a cosmic enemy, Satan, who would happily present plenty of valid reasons why we should not be allowed to live. The edict for our destruction could legitimately have been signed against us by our great God, but that is not how God, the true sovereign God, has chosen to deal with us. Look at what our king has done instead. He has not listened to the case that Satan brings against us. Instead, he has taken his own dear son, the one who is as precious to him as a signet ring, and has handed him over to his enemies to buffet. God said, in effect, Satan, do with my son as seems good to you. Let him be punished for sin, but let his people go. Destroy, kill, annihilate Jesus. For sin must be paid for. Plunder his few goods and distribute them among those who are putting him to death. Torture and mock him. Execute him on a cross. But as for my people, you shall not touch them. Here is no shallow logic and lightly considered reasoning. Here is the deepest logic of all, a logic that predates time itself in the eternal counsels of God, whereby the actions of one man, the man Christ Jesus, now have redemptive consequences for his whole people as they place their trust in him. Instead of letters of death winging their way speedily to all corners of the empire in every language, now the gospel of life goes to every tribe and nation in their own tongues. Indeed, as the gospel penetrates our hearts, we ourselves become living letters from God. We are God's mail delivery system to bring this message of life to our neighbors and to the furthest nations. We carry the aroma of Christ everywhere we go. Who would not gladly bow down before such a king? Isn't that amazing? What a great comparison to an awful king. Instead, we have the greater plans of a higher king, the king of love. On our behalf. And if you read this and think about this and think about what we deserve, I hope that you hear that and that you resolve before another day comes to be right with the true King through His Son Jesus Christ.
That brings me to one application, the final point, number six. Trust your plans. Trust your life to your loving, all-wise, all-sovereign Father. We all have lots of plans. We have lifelong plans. Usually they're pretty normal plans. People want to do well in life and finish school and get an education, get a good job, get married maybe, have kids, or maybe raise your kids and be at peace. Those kind of normal plans. And it's not wrong to want plans like that. We all know that our plans do not typically come to pass the way we expect them. And it's interesting that the word pure, P-U-R, in this chapter is also the word goral, which is the Hebrew word for lots. And it's the same word that's used in Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6, where the psalmist says that, that the boundary lines have fallen to him in pleasant places. And God has made his lot secure. It's a reference to the division of the land under Joshua when Joshua divided the land by casting lots for which tribe would be where. And there's this idea that God is sovereign over our lot in life, what he has destined for our lives. You think of Esther, this probably relatively young woman or teenage girl. Think of how her plans were probably ruined. She didn't probably grow up wanting to be in the harem of the king. It might have been nice in one way. You'd be taken care of, but who wants to be in the harem of a king? And that's it for your life. Maybe you only see the king once a year or something like that. Probably as a Jewish woman living in exile, she wanted to marry a Jewish man and raise up Jewish children in a godly way. Her plans were wrecked. Chapter 2. Mordecai. We don't know much about his plans, but we certainly see that Mordecai would have felt something very sharply in chapter 2 of being overlooked when he should have been rewarded and exalted. So the plans of Mordecai and Esther weren't really coming about. Our plans don't always work out the way they do. In fact, they're usually very different than what our plans might have been. But one of the major applications of this book of Esther as we walk through it is that we can trust our loving, all-sovereign, all-wise God with our plans. Maybe you're being oppressed by the world and belittled by the world. Take heart. Apply to your life this wonderful truth. God is the greatest king. God rules and God reigns. Let us trust in him. Amen. Father, thank you for the fact that your invisible hand is at work in our lives. Thank you that not a hair falls from our head apart from the will of our Father in heaven. We can't even imagine the way your detailed sovereignty extends over our lives, and you tell us that that is for our good, that that is in your wisdom, that that is by your grace for all who belong to Christ. O Lord, help us to cling to you, to trust in you, to rest in you no matter what is happening in the world. Help us to be in the world but not of the world. Give us grace to be courageous and 